Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Lucas Fennell of Canavox. Lucas, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Lucas is the JV Boys Outreach Advisor for Canavox. He has worked in ministry in the Pacific Northwest for the last 10 years, working with uh, young people, especially young men. And he's been married for uh, over 13 years. 14 years. 14 years now, and as a, is a yeah. father of three. So, Lucas, we appreciate uh, you making the time to come on and join us and talk to us a little bit about fatherhood. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And so, you've been working with young men. How did you get into that work with Canavox? I was a youth pastor at a church in Seattle some years ago at an evangelical church there. And after a couple of years... I was feeling under-equipped to be able to engage in some of these conversations around LGBTQ topics, um, just around friendship in general, and just being able to talk with, with guys about topics in light of it being something more than just biblical. What do you encourage boys to believe, or what do you encourage boys to think about or to study, to trust? And there was a gal at our church at the time that was working with moms and daughters, and they were talking about all the topics. They were talking about pornography, and they were talking about same-sex attraction, wow. transgender ideology. And I was, I was like, where are you coming up with this material? Where, where's the, the course curriculum? And why are you having them with moms and with the daughters? I, I was fascinated by that because as a guy, I was thinking, man, that is the solution for young boys is to be talking about these topics with their dad in the same room. And so that kind of just spurred on some interest about talking about these topics. And so I started to ask her about where she was getting her material from. And she introduced me to Cana Vox, which is an East Coast company that focuses on um, marriage and topics of sexual ethics. And so after being connected to them, I asked if they would allow me to use their curriculum, which at the time was only designed for girls. It was really meant for moms and their daughters. And so... They allowed me to take a look at their material and I kind of reworded a few things and passed out a couple of documents and said, hey, read this. Next week, we're going to talk about it. We just had boys and just their dads. And I'll tell you what, I think the first time that we did it, it was probably about eight or nine high school boys and their dads. I think probably about six or seven of the dads made it. And it was a conversation like none I've ever had hmm. where boys were able to go there and talk about things and their dads were able to go there as well. And sometimes it was, you know, it was not like they were confiding in each other per se, but there's so much strength to a boy here in that his dad wrestles with some of the same topics that he wrestles with. Which it seems like in normal conversation is not something that fathers are really inclined to bring up unless they have some impetus to do so. But if they're just driving the kid to school or something like that, they're not just going to bring it up out of the blue, right? Yeah. The more I work with men, the more that I realize that we do need a catalyst, mm. a push to have hard conversations. I'm sure that it's the same with girls, but I mean, even in watching the way that my mom connects with other women or the way that my wife connects with other women, or I mean, I got three daughters. So the way that girls connect with other girls, they'll sit down, they'll grab their cup of coffee and they'll just, <laughs> all right, just go there. Most <laughs> guys are looking at it going, no, not happening, man. <laughs> you know, we need something that as guys, we, we connect side by side. Girls can tend to connect more face to face and just go there. Mm -hmm. And guys need, um, not girls do too, but guys really need a, a wrench or a, a hiking trail or 
some sort of hobby to get them focused on something so that the conversation naturally opens up about some of those harder topics. And I think that we do need a bit of a push to engage in some of them. Yeah, that shared activity or that third thing to focus on and kind of open up that space is kind of a, it's a tough thing. But, you know, sometimes you can see it developing in, in unexpected ways in different online cultures because people have such control over the kind of the communities they build up around themselves online. And you can find, you know, exactly the people who have your niche interest. And that can be very much a two-edged sword. You could either become, you know, totally ensconced in this bubble, right, where you you only ever talk about people who, you know, make you more extreme in this one thing you're interested in. Or it could connect you with people who are really able to help you through whatever shared interests you have, like become more human and really build human connections. So is that is that mm. something you've seen with like specific shared activities? Yeah, absolutely. I think in general, when we're talking about friendship, which is really where we kick off our, our Canavox series with both um, girls and with guys and with middle school and with high school, it just launches on friendship because friendship is so key to all other relationships coming outside of those. And I think if you and I were to sit here and say, you know, tell me about friendships in the past, you would tell me about all kinds of funny little stories about you and your buddies running out behind the woods in your house, you know, creating mischief and lighting your leg on fire and all the things. <laughs> and those are really cool stories that really allow guys to launch into a, a deeper conversation as they start talking about you know, what is the most important thing about friendship? And I think a lot of it is about shared activities. I mean, when we're younger, it's banging on a leaf spring of a uh, pickup truck and trying to shape it into a sword. You know, when when you're older, those shared activities are going to be being coworkers and then having a job or having a, a mission between the two of you or something. And the difficulties when you're younger is going to be someone's parents are going through divorce. The difficulties when you're older is going to be some bout against alcoholism. But the reality is those friendships that we build at a younger age, they build a trust within us, especially as men, I think, so that later on as we're older men that we can look back and say, I know what friendship's really about. I was able to talk about these topics. My friends were to, were there for me. They wanted, They cared. They wanted to ask questions about it. And it took a lot of time to get there in the conversation. But once it did, this is what was the difference between me surviving and thriving in life was having good friends. You know, Aristotle even said that good friends are, they're a kind of a mirror to each other. And by looking at them and talking with them, that you know yourself better and become able to work on your, your own version of yourself more, um, even mm -hmm. imitating the other person. And so it's important to realize that we do shape each other. And you, you have found a way, which I, in you, listening to you talk about it off the call, I, I've been a little jealous of. You have found a way to work in Aristotle's treatment of friendship into your ministry with boys and their fathers. Yeah. I, well, actually, a lot of the material that we use is based on natural law. So, Canavox is not faith-based in their curriculum. We really want students to be able to have the ability to have conversations with non-believers. And so it's really trying to show students how faith and reason seem together like a zipper. Mm. You know, they support each other. Yeah. And so majority of the conversations that we're going to have with other people are going to be those of a different faith system than you and I have. 
therefore, a lot of our curriculum is based on natural law. It's based on social sciences. It's based on psychology. And that's informed sort of the three-part structure of how you help teach guys about friendship, right? Yeah, friendship, it, it needs three major key elements in order to be a step above the regular friendships that we have in our life. There's a lot of different friendships. Um, we even kind of include a little diagram of an onion and talk about these layers of friendships because as guys, we'll just be like, yeah, he's a friend or he's not a friend. You know what I mean? But the truth is, is that there's acquaintances, there's casual friends, there's good friends, there's best friends. And why do we need different ones? And what is the point of each one of these friendships? It matters. And as we get down to like, what is a good friend and what is a best friend, honestly, has these three major elements. First, it has to be personal. You can't just be, you know, best friends with a a buddy that you're gaming with in the evenings. You got to be able to see the whites of their eyes. You got to be able to call them out on stuff. You got to be able to share experiences side by side, build really good memories more than just gaming. Yeah. And so we're working a lot of middle school boys, you know, they'll, they'll talk about how much they love gaming. But the reality is, is that you and I, like even our gaming experience back when we were younger was more around a, an N64 where we would rip the controller out. You were sitting right <laughs> next to your buddy, yeah. you know, and then you'd sit there and smash on him for a second. Yeah. And there was a lot of banter back and forth, but that doesn't exist today. So we do need to encourage that it has to be personal. Second, it involves a level of goodwill where you want to, you actually want to will the good out of the other person. You know, we're kind of coming up on those holiday songs that talk about peace on earth and goodwill to men. What is goodwill? And we just talk about how there there has to be within a really good relationship, a good friendship. There's a self-sacrifice in order to will the good out of the other person that might come at an expense of your own. Even C.S. Lewis kind of talked about three different kinds of friendships there, that there was a friendship of utility and a friendship of pleasure, but really there's this friendship of the good. Mm -hmm. What is the good? You know, it's something that's more than those other two, which both you and I have friendships of utility. You know, I can't go to the gym unless my spotting buddy shows up. Yeah. Can't hit that one rep max. They're good, but they're just not enough, right? And most friendships that go to like that deep level of good friendship, they have all of those layers. You know, Mm -hmm. I still have a buddy that I love to game with. They are a friendship of pleasure. They make my life sweeter just by hanging out with them. But at a deep, deep level, I would say that once all those other surfacey friends have gone away, the ones that are the deepest ones are the ones that are the friend of the good. And they are willing to make sacrifices on my behalf to see me at my best. And I'm willing to do the same for them. And then that third level is it has to have some vulnerability. There has to be some level of familiarity, a closeness, intimacy. We've heard that said is into me, see. So we talk to middle middle school boys, high school boys about trying to let somebody else see into you, you know, which is hard for us guys to do. Yeah is to let someone else come into that very vulnerable place. It's so much easier to just talk about sports. <laughs> Heck yeah. <laughs> Sorry about the Mariners, by the way. <laughs> uh, 18 innings is a lot. Anyway. Okay. Are there um, particular areas of resistance that you get when you are talking to boys about this kind of friendship or about these aspects of friendship? There's always, like we just said, there's, there's, there's always filters, big walls and barriers that are built up. And the reasons why those barriers are there, we do touch on those as as the sessions go on. 
couple sessions later, um, we'll have a session on understanding same-sex attraction. And it goes into detail with many different potential factors of same-sex attraction and talking about really what guys want or need in a good friendship. Um, and so it, it goes back to this. In fact, all of our series kind of go back to this session on friendship because it's so important. I mean, being vulnerable is often perceived as what with guys? It's like one step before being rejected. Absolutely. So you got like weakness and then your total rejection. Neither one of those is something that I want to be seen as. And same with these other guys. They're being taught by their primary educator, which is their dad and their mom, and they're catching whatever those patterns are. And so some of these boys will come into these calls because we're having them weekly, or sometimes we even do five days back to back. But our series can go up to eight sessions, and sometimes we'll have like eight weeks back to back. And some of these boys will say stuff like, you know, I've never seen my dad cry mm -hmm. ever, you know, so why would I think that it's okay to be open and vulnerable with another group of guys? And if you did, you wouldn't exactly like be comfortable being in the room while he's crying, right? Oh, no way. So I don't know that it's always just patterned that way. But I mean, it's also what we catch from our friends and from the entertainment that we have in our lives and seeing what Hollywood has portrayed as this is what masculinity is really all about. You know, yeah, you got to have everything together before you get married. You got to blah, blah, blah. You got to take advantage of women. You got and then these boys come into these calls and they're like, whoa our world is really backwards on a lot of things. And so we kind of have to start back from the beginning and kind of go through that stuff. Yeah. What do you think the difference is for a father to have lively friendships versus a father who doesn't? Man, fatherhood is, now that I see how each one of my kids is so different, some of them are extroverted, some of them are introverted. You know, some of them are, you know, more analytical and the others are just want to be really athletic and there's different styles of every child and trying to be a dad to boys, trying to be a dad to girls. I'll tell you, like the thing that I, I feel like I have to do almost the most is try to encourage friendship. I know that I have a massive influ influence in my children's lives as a parent. And that's a call that I believe I have from God. But then they have education alongside of that. And in addition to those, the one thing that I can't replace and that education can't replace is friendship. That I have to be a proponent as a parent of trying to encourage my kids having good friendships and being a part of programs and different um, systems that encourage that sort of thing. You know, one of the things that we'll talk a little bit about in some of these calls is we'll talk about how friends, you know, they kind of domesticate each other. And on top of that, as being a father of three daughters and a husband and a wife, you know, there's a massive demand of me when I come home from work to be the man, whether you got guys or girls in your house, you know, to be the man in that house. And I'll tell you, I feel depleted often working multiple jobs and coming home exhausted. And then you got to put on this face and try to be the guy that you've been called to be. If I don't have healthy friendship, I start coming unglued at some point. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds you that there are other people outside yourself, which like in a family setting, it can be easy to lose sight of when you're living with the same people for years on end. Whereas, you know, friends help provide that sort of outside reminder that, you know, hey, you are not your own. Yeah. And one of the things that we focus on in our Canavox series is towards the end of every session, we're, we're trying to do some sort of a case study, 
sometimes it's a case study the entire way through. How do you deal with this topic? Mm-hmm. You know, but we often end with a case study to try to just make it more personal with them because they're going to end up in a conversation around these topics with acquaintances, good friends, best friends in their lives. The way that we carry ourselves in those conversations is that's where the rubber really meets the road. And so trying to rehearse that here on a call with a couple of guys to give them a trial so that when they're having these conversations with their friends, maybe they know some other really important questions to ask that haven't been addressed in our friendship. Or maybe they're just learning how to answer really tough questions in a way that doesn't open mouth and insert foot that still says, I care about you. I care about your opinion. I may have a different opinion. And I think that our friendship, and this is where we're addressing it as different layers of friendship, we're saying, okay, if this is a a good friend here, then I can say, you know, I think that you and I having this kind of a friendship allows us to have some differences on ideas. And that's okay, right? Are you agree with that? You know, that type of stuff. Yeah. We're trying to set some boundaries and open up some communication and just trying to teach other guys how to do that. Yeah, that that does sound really helpful because I could see if you don't have that and you're trying to raise children, you might be tempted to sort of mold them completely in your image and not see where it's okay for there to be more wiggle room or more of a margin for them to, you know, completely diverge from you and what you believe is important versus what really does matter. And if they don't have this, then they're not going to be able to, you know, live a happy life or something like that. Yeah. We'll often get boys on these calls and I'm I'm not trying to pigeonhole their parents or anything like that. But as you, you just get to know a, a young guy, you kind of learn who his parents are, you know, who's he being modeled after by the things that come out of their mouth. They're just like, well, that sounds gay. You know what I mean? And we're trying to allow them to have space to be able to talk in their normal vernacular. So, you know, when they say something like that, I'm like, Oh, what do you mean by that? They're like, Oh, I just, I don't want to open up about that kind of stuff. That just sounds like, I don't know, mushy gushy. I'm like, Oh, well, tell me about how you and your dad talk about that topic. You know, well, we don't, we don't. Yeah. So it's really important. I think it's it's extremely important. And I think that any sort of education system is going to try at some level to try to woo them into conversations and teach them how to be a good citizen. But there's very, very few systems out there that are designed the way that we are designed, which is a discussion group. Yeah, I'm not trying to steal the show. In fact, we ask probably 50 to 100 questions in an hour and 15 minutes. Wow. Yeah. And this is something that you've done not just with high school boys, but you've also done another version of this with people who are in jail, right? Yeah. We got a a ministry out here. So I live out in the peninsula in Washington and got in with a prison out here. And I am a peer support specialist with them, which is basically a professional homie. And in addition to that, (laughs) I get to run a once a week group session with C Block. And these are just a group of guys that have said, I'm willing to get some sort of help and therapy, whether that's behavioral, drug and alcohol, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so they're all in that same block. They live together. They eat together. They they grow together and they are so ready to grow that in the last year and a half, I started bringing Canavox in there. The turnover rate's pretty, pretty frequent. So we can go through this series over and over and over. But the similarity between guys that are incarcerated around the age of, you know, 30, 35 is ridiculously similar to a 14 year old boy. Wow. Because 
they're kind of in the same place mentally and emotionally as a lot of these guys. I mean, they didn't have the same safe, healthy upbringing that these boys did, Mm -hmm. but they also usually started using drugs and alcohol right around that 14, 15 year old age and everything kind of just pushed pause. And so we just kind of come right back in at friendship. And I'll tell you, when you're sitting in a group of eight or nine inmates that are tattooed from their toes to their nose, and there's there's no security guard even in the room, you know, and I say, all right, based on this definition of what acquaintance, good friend, best friend, all these different things are, tell me how many best friends you have in your life. And it's usually zero of seven, zero of eight, you know, once they look at those numbers and look at those definitions and go, by that definition, I have no best friends. Yeah. And then we talk about what is a best friend then net you? And can you trace incarceration back to a lack of genuine friendship? And that's its own conversation. It's amazing to just be on a fly on the wall and hear these guys talk yeah. about how important it is. It seems like it sheds some light on what it's like to be a teenage boy too. The fact that, that there's so much in common. Well, most of their memories, if I ask them to like, hey, tell me a memory about a good friendship. They're still going back to the same memories that these boys are talking about, back to lighting their leg on fire in the back 40 behind their house. So they're still the same key memories they have of building and working through friendships, sometimes losing friendships, and then trying to figure out if they want to or how to open themselves up to be able to engage in new friendships again. And they realize that friendships, real genuine ones are so clutch to them overcoming drug and alcohol behavioral problems in their life, having people in their corner. I think it's hard for people, especially after they've had kids, to make friends that aren't just the parents of the kids in their class or something like that. Because like I remember like growing up, my parents didn't really didn't didn't really have a lot of friends that they saw on a regular basis. Like and I, I asked my mom relatively recently, like, did you have friends when I was like when I was in school outside of the parents of my friends? And she said, no, not really, because mm-hmm. it's just hard, especially if you've moved away from like a previous friend group or something like that to get into a community. How can fathers make healthy friendships if they have to start from scratch? It's hard to answer. I think it's the age old response of if you want good friends, you're going to have to be the friend. Yeah. So start by being a great friend. But I think the fact that you're even asking the question is so important because our kids are going to model what they see. They realize that I'm not just blowing smoke at them when I tell them that they have to do the same thing. Because at this point in my life, my stability as a man and as a father to them It has a lot to do with the friendships that I even have now. I can't always depend on my wife to be that person, just the only best friend that I've got in my life. Yeah, that's too big of a burden. It's too big of a burden, exactly. And I think, you know, we don't have to come up with a perfect solution to this or anything like that. I think it's enough to just acknowledge how difficult it is. You know, if people listening to this can just realize that If you're lacking in like a strong friend group, that's okay because a lot of other people are experiencing something similar. And for all the like connection that we have in our world, like there's still a lot of, a lot of disconnect in and among that, you know, partly because we're so transitory. Yeah. Talking with boys, we we definitely end this session on friendship by talking about friendship and loneliness. Mm -hmm. We've talked with a lot of guys who are lonely and hard on themselves because they don't have friends. They start to think that they're not worthy of friends. 
And we have to nip that in the bud and say, that's, that's not true. We got to speak what is true about them. You're not dysfunctional. You're lonely because you're a human and you are designed for friendship. Being a great friend to others starts with being a great friend to yourself. So focus on the qualities that you like about yourself and continue to enhance those things, being patient with things that you don't like about yourself. Work on being the man who is thoughtful and thinks of others, who is interesting and pleasant and fun to be around. Work on those, those really honestly, those, those outer layers of that onion that are those first acquaintance things those key starting points of, of becoming a friend and honestly just being a, a really a healthy human. Lucas, where can we find you online? You can go to canavox.com, C-A-N-A-V-O-X.com and you can look under the leaders that are underneath there. You will see a picture of me and a little bio. We'll have a link to Canavox in the episode notes. Lucas, thank you for joining us. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. Kara, we're finally doing it. We're talking about the Rings of Power Season 1. Thank you for joining us. Let's do it. We've been teasing this for a little while. We've been looking at a lot of other Tolkien stuff. And now that Season 1 of Amazon's The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power is complete, we will be discussing all of it. So, blanket spoiler alert for the first, and as of this recording, only eight episodes of the new show. And we have a lot to cover. Before we start out, a couple of notes. One, Amazon, in doing the Lord of the Rings show, did not have the legal rights to the Silmarillion, where the actual content of this part of the timeline is primarily written about. They had rights to The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings proper, and the appendices of The Lord of the Rings, which talks about these events which take place 3,000 years before Lord of the Rings, sort of indirectly, and have to do with Galadriel and Elrod, who are still alive and a little bit younger at that point and also Aragorn's remote ancestors. So that's the line that Amazon has sort of had to try and be very delicate with. Except I guess they can ask the Tolkien estate for one-off permission, like, hey, can we use this name that's only in the Silmarillion or something like that? So they have that door open to them, but they don't use it very often. But this does tend to tie their hands in terms of what they can actually portray. And usually when they run afoul of something, they're not actually contradicting what Tolkien wrote. It's more like playing on the notion of he didn't say it wasn't this way, so we can sort of fill in the gaps. So there's some room for ambiguity there. I feel like that'll probably be the bulk of what we're going to talk about today is just like the interesting choices about characters that were made. <laughs> yeah, because Amazon has made a lot of choices, which brings me to the second thing. There was a ton of backlash when the show came out and then a backlash to the backlash about everything that's wrong or right about the show. And that was when... There were like two episodes out of eight that had come out and nobody had even seen the season yet or knew where it was going. So now with the benefit of hindsight, we're able to evaluate everything. And you know what? We're not going to be totally positive about the show. Actually, as we're recording this, I don't even know if Kara's going to be positive at all. <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll see how that goes. Kara, I'm curious to see. I'm looking forward to hearing how your takes are unfolding. But the reasons people were saying the show is bad really have very little to do with the content of the story itself. So we're not going to wade into the controversy of like who was cast in one, what part or things like that, because the show doesn't rise and fall on that. It rises and falls on the story that they're telling. Yep. And so that's how we're primarily going to be approaching it, right? I would agree. Enough of this throat clearing. Let's dive in. <laughs> 
So the show, which takes place about 3,000 years before Lord of the Rings, but they don't really come out and say that in the show because they have to leave the timeline a little ambiguous, covers about three main plot arcs as we were talking about it. There are a couple other storylines that we could talk about, but they're more minor. And so there's one that follows the predecessors to the Hobbits, the Harfoots, and their encounter with this stranger who was known before the show came out as Meteor Man because he, he was in a meteor that fell out of the sky and landed in Middle Earth. <laughs> and then there's the relation between the dwarves and the elves, which you primarily see with Elrond and his dwarf friend Durin, who's the prince of what will eventually be Moria, but at this point is called Khazad-dûm. And then the elves and Galadriel interacting with a couple of different groups of men and being on the lookout for the rise of Sauron. Is that a fair way to set up the three basic plot arcs? Yeah, and I guess if you've seen it, we're kind of lumping the Southlands storyline in with the kind of Galadriel-Numenor storyline, because they kind of intersect and are following sort of similar trajectories, let's say. They're like happening together. So you could split them apart, I guess, but I think the Galadriel part is more interesting, so we'll probably focus on that. Okay, so Kara, what did you think of young Galadriel? Oh, I have, I have mixed feelings about young Galadriel. So first of all, at the very beginning, yes, what, like there's like the first couple of episodes, my husband and I watched all this together. And I turned to him at one point, I was like, I am really not into she warrior Galadriel as a show. <laughs> I'm just, I'm not here for it. This is not the show I thought I was signing up for. I'm glad that there was a bit of a turn at the in the last episode. As much as I really dislike her being this kind of like frothing at the mouth kind of like warrior character. And I think part of it is like, it just feels very disconnected from what you know of her as most wise elf Galadriel, right? Like in the Lord of the Rings, she's sort of set up as like the most powerful and wise elf out there. This is all the elves are capable of being. These are the heights they can reach. Yeah. And on the one hand, I like I really I'm glad that it's gonna be like kind of an interesting character arc that is kind of exploring I, this is gonna be a, a weird analogy, but like part of what I loved about the TV show Breaking Bad is that it's an exploration of like how a person fundamentally changes in their character. If you've never seen Breaking Bad, this is not a spoiler, but the fact that he actually was always this person and he's sort of like uncovering it. And that part of that is because he's like sinking more into himself and into depravity. And I think what seems interesting about the character of Galadriel is that the way that it's being set up is that fundamentally she has to go through a transformation because she has, and they, you know, I think that the, the evil elf, what's his name? Adar. Adar points this out to her. He's like, I am not the only one whose heart has been touched by darkness. And I thought that that's just so poignant. And I think it seems as though it impacts Galadriel too. Like she starts to see for herself how much hatred that she has. I don't know that it like makes an, it certainly doesn't seem to make an impact in the first season per se, but the way that she like looks at him gives you the sense that I think that's going to be important, that there's going to be a turning point where she realizes that she has been sort of poisoned by her pursuit of Sauron. And I think that that's like a necessary transformation, you know, in sort of like a Christian way, right? Like we have to completely reject evil in order to seek God. And like, 
as humans, you know, we're fallen and, you know, we're always tempted by sin and we have to constantly repent and return to the gospel. Exactly. I mean, not that elves are, you know, they're above men in that way, but I think that she, like, she's going to go through, she had, like, it necessarily requires her to go through a transformation in a way that, like, descending into evil is merely like a looking inward and it's not necessarily a transformation. So I have two questions. One, do you think that they should have given her such a long way to go? Like, do you think they should have started her so far from where she needed to end up? (laughs) Or would you have preferred it maybe if they had made her a little more similar to the Gladril we know? Still having to learn some of the same lessons, just not to the same degree. It's a good question. So that's question one. I guess this comes down to, like, how much do you trust the writers? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because... I don't know why I keep coming back to Breaking Bad, but like what Breaking Bad was six seasons and he goes through a pretty far descent, it seems. Yeah. And so, you know, I think in the hands of deft writers, it could be done, you know, six or this is supposed to be five seasons long. I think they've said is like the plan for Rings of Power. The plan is for five seasons, about 50 hours worth of stuff. So I think, you know, that's a lot of time to play with. And so I could see where from a like writerly perspective, you're giving yourself more rope. You know, it's like she's got a further way to go. You've got like more storyline to possibly work with there. Yeah. And I don't know. There's like a part of me that thinks about like major transformations that people have. And sometimes the like more jarring it is, the more authentic in a way if she was already mostly good. And I think she is in her heart. Like she, it seems to me that she has been poisoned is the wrong word, but she has become obsessed with something that was really bad for her. I think it's less about she is a fundamentally dark character who has to go through this major transformation. And I think it's more about her realizing the dark journey she has led herself on. And the fact that I have now created myself into a thing that I actually don't want to be. And that kind of like rediscovering the goodness of her own nature feels like a less far way to go. What you said about trusting the writers leads me to my second question. Early on, like in the first couple of episodes, were you even sure they were going to go that direction? Or did you think there was a possibility the story was going to be such that, no, it's good that Galadriel is this... She warrior who's doing battle with the elves and she's going to stay in Middle Earth and try and hunt down Sauron. Like, heck yeah. Did you think there was a chance the show might go that way? I guess I did think there was a chance because I was starting to feel really down about the fact that I needed to watch eight episodes of this. Okay. I was like, I don't, I'm not really that interested in Xena warrior princess, but like in elven gear. I shouldn't say that. I never actually watched Xena warrior princess. I don't know what she was like. You know, like, I don't really need a boss babe. Like, I'm just not that interested in that character. I was concerned, but I guess I should say up front, like, I thoroughly enjoyed watching the show. All right. Other than the Harfoots, which I thought were super boring. Otherwise, I was like, this was pretty enjoyable. I mean, I wasn't, I was not sitting there trying to, like, be a Tolkien fiend, like, looking for the errors, except for... One that I don't think is an error, but was bothering me a lot. What was that? When she says it, her husband, can't remember the wording exactly, but more or less, it's like he has been missing. But we know he's in Lord of the Rings, so like you have to know that he's going to show up at some point, right? 
And I think that's an underutilized tool when you're making a prequel. Because the problem with prequels is you always know how they're going to end. Well, you can use that Mm -hmm. because dramatic irony is a longstanding narrative device that has sort of fallen out of favor because you get so wrapped up in suspense and not knowing what's going to happen next. But there's a way to do it where the audience knows what's going to happen next and the characters don't. And you can have these nice moments of do they know what we know, what's going to happen next, and we can see where their choices might bode ill or well Mm. based on their lack of knowledge that we have. That's a good thing. It's in Hamlet. (laughs) You can use that. Good point, yeah. So I don't know if they're intentionally playing that angle with her husband or if that's targeted more to people who don't know Lord of the Rings as well and they don't Mm. know who her husband is and they don't remember that guy was standing next to Kate Blanchett in the movies. (laughs) Yeah. On the note of Galadriel's husband, Kara, I take it that you were not shipping Galadriel and Hallbrand? Uh, No, I was not into that. Okay, I've got to know. Did did you suspect the ultimate reveal? I think this is a book reader versus not book reader thing. <laughs> I didn't. I was totally surprised. I was like really floored. Fair, because when I when I went back and read a little bit more about the backstory, it's like, oh, he often does this where he goes to the people's like in disguise. So I could see if you like read the Silmarillion, you know that's his mo. It's like the difference between. Online dating, and if you meet a guy online, you don't know anybody else who knows him, and you go on a date with him. You don't know where he's coming from. Versus if you're dating a guy who you met in real life, and you have some of the same friends, those friends can say, like, hey, he does this when he goes on dates with women. This is what he does. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) I think it's kind of like that. Some people are actually enamored of the idea of Galadriel and Hallbrand in a relationship. And so they are shipping them, which is funny. They met on a literal ship. (laughs) It's like the show is encouraging this. Even after seeing the finale, people are into this? (sighs) Yeah, some people are still sticking to their guns. Mm -mm. Hard pass. Hard pass. Look, they did. I think they did a great job on the casting. Like as somebody who has not read this, I'm really in. Great casting. I went back through and kind of was thinking about it and going through the episodes in my mind of... Should I have caught on to it? I think they do a nice job of giving like all the bread trail breadcrumbs that you would want. Like there are things that you should should be suspicious about this guy. Like how he took the little insignia off a dead man and he never said it was properly his. Mm-hmm. I think they do some interesting stuff though about like him being a metal worker, and it's like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. So it's like he's forging a ring. Okay, like they do a lot of like good things that all like feed into his character but also i mean even when you he says we were fighting a common enemy because adar killed him apparently at some point or like split him did something to him or it's like okay although he seems to be doing your bidding a little unclear on that part of it but (laughs) i'm sure we'll find out more later adar is like a rival he's trying to replace him and sauron's gonna have to crack down and show him who's boss in the next season but also the the whole Adar thing is interesting too because obviously like he was looking for the blade of Sauron. I don't want to say he was doing it at Sauron's behest, but there's obviously some like common goal. I guess maybe Adar just thinks that he's creating a world that his creatures can live in by blowing up the mountain. Well, you know, Stalin and Hitler both wanted to rule Europe and they were opposed. Good analogy. 
just because Adar has more of the proletariat on his side and Sauron is kind of more of the fascist. It's not an allegory, though. (laughs) I really liked the end conversation between Galadriel and Sauron, though. It does give you a little bit more of the Sauron backstory, or at least it, like, it prompted me to go look up a little bit more. Like, Sauron is actually a fallen angel type right. creature. And so he does have powers above and beyond even the elves. And so the fact that he, you know, has some ability to shapeshift and like be deceitful and things like that is interesting. But it's also, I thought it was like a really poignant reflection on the nature of evil where you know he says let's save middle earth and she said what by ruling it and he's like isn't that the same thing yeah and i was like oh that was really that was really good which is wild in that moment because he he thinks he's being repentant Mm -hmm. but he's not willing to disavow his evil ways so he says he's trying to make up for what he did and he regrets it and he's trying to heal middle earth but then Healing Middle-earth is still Mm self-serving. So he's backsliding at the same time he's expressing remorse. Mm -hmm. So he's not able to really receive mercy. 100%. The two of them are an interesting pair in that they both have a lot of pride. Yeah. But I think this is where you kind of that like what I was talking about earlier, like Galadriel has sort of an underlying goodness that she has sort of allowed to be dimmed yeah. by her by her absolute like obsession with killing him but also shines through there where she says no like i would be a tyrant and like that right. is not good for other people and it seems you know it's both pride on sauron's part but also a sense of superiority and the fact that like like taking away other people's free will basically i mean that's kind of the you know the always the problem of evil is that like you can't take away people's free will and still say that they are able to choose goodness i think the show writers are trying to tie that into like a real world again a dating situation where sauron is like a problematic guy and you know galadriel is in the position of somebody thinking like i can fix him this jumped out in that same argument that they're having sauron says i could be good with you at my side like you can fix me (laughs) she needs to understand which i think she does by the end of that encounter If he can't be at least minimally good without you, he's not going to be good with you. Yeah, definitely. Well, I also think that part of that, I sort of wonder about his motivation, if he is really saying he can be good or if he just knows what she needs to hear. Yeah. (laughs) Like he's, you know, he's the ultimate manipulator. I mean, in the same way that like the devil knows how to play on our insecurities and our like deep desires. That's one thing I also... I find the character of Galadriel interesting because she does seem to have some weakness for like a desire for power. And they haven't really delved into it. But I mean, you see this even in Lord of the Rings, right? Like she, she, when she kind of has her like final test. That's a real thing in the books too. Oh, her, that test or the desire for power? Both. Oh, interesting. So I, I appreciate that that's like staying true to the character because it's just like a more humanizing element as opposed to like Galadriel, perfect elf can do no wrong. I think it makes her a much more interesting and multi-layered character. 
Some people sort of are uncomfortable in Galadriel's show to be flawed because they think she is like a one-to-one representative of Mary as this immaculate beacon. Oh, interesting. No. Yeah. (laughs) Which is not even true in Lord of the Rings because she comes this close to giving it a temptation Mm -hmm. to taking the ring. And up until that point, she says some things that don't sound quite so inspirational or exemplary. And... Definitely before Lord of the Rings, when Tolkien in some of the other works talks about where Galadriel is coming from earlier on around this time, but also before, part of her reason for going to Middle-earth is to rule a realm of her own. Oh, interesting. That's one motivation that he mentions. So that's part of it, and that's something she has to struggle with by virtue of her natural greatness. You know, the hobbits aren't going to be tempted to that because they're never going to get close to ruling anything. Look at them. But, you know, she, by virtue of being among the highest elves, will have that problem. Mm -hmm. Which is exactly why she should never actually carry the ring. Well, that's what I find interesting about the sort of ring creation at the end. The three elven rings, which happens at the end of the last episode. My expectation, I realized as I was watching that scene, was that Galadriel should say, we shouldn't do this because she knows who it was who was egging them on to make it. Like, she has realized that it's Sauron who's basically, like, given them the key to create these rings and is sort of the one who's, like, been pushing them. And rather than her going up there and saying, no, we should not do this, she says... Well, we should make three of them instead so that, like, we can wield the power if it's, like, done in the right way. It's like she kind of – she gave in to that temptation, which I found myself like, oh, but also, you know, <laughs> you got to get the rings created somehow, so. <laughs> and Tolkien, when he talks about the three elven rings, he's more nuanced than he typically gets credit for. Everyone thinks he's just black and white, good and evil story. First of all, that's not the case with Frodo. <laughs> it's the reason Aragorn isn't the main mm. character. And with the three elven rings specifically, they are forged without Sauron's direct involvement. So they're not as bad as the one ring, certainly, but also the the rings that the dwarves and the men get. It inclines them to fall. Well, aren't they, just for clarity's sake, I guess we find out in the Lord of the Rings at the opening, those are actually gifts from Sauron. Right. Right. So he like forged them and gave them to them. I think he might have forged them in cooperation with Celebrimbor, the guy who's also creating the three rings. So it's not, I think the only one that he actually creates alone and in secret is the one Mm. ring. But yeah, he's more directly involved in the other nine and the seven than he is with the three, where he's just saying like, hey, you guys should make some rings and here's some basic. Let's problem solve. I feel like he's figuring it out. He's a consultant. Yeah. I mean, I feel like narratively, it was a smart choice in the sense that they d- tell you earlier on that he he has this idea about forging something. Like, you don't know, like, we know it's a ring, but like, they don't explicitly say he wants to forge a ring. It's more like... They don't jump right to yeah, rings. Yeah, it's like, oh, he knows that he wants to basically create some talisman, but he hasn't done it yet. and He hasn't figured it out yet. And so I think it's interesting that they sort of are showing here the ways in which the elves have basically enabled him because he's the one who was like, oh, well, we can like force these together. And it's like, oh, well, actually, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's like a different process to altogether. Coaxed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the elves are like, I don't say complicit. They're, they're the ones who actually are like enabling all of this at the same time. I thought it was like a really interesting narrative choice. 
Yeah. So the three Elden Rings aren't bad, but the process that resulted in their creation wasn't good either. Yeah. And they're not really a workable long-term solution to how can the elves have a stable realm in Middle-earth and how can they guarantee the survival of goodness. Yeah. You know, eventually, at the end of Lord of the Rings... When the ring is, when the one ring is destroyed, the three elven rings lose their power and they're no longer effective. And the remaining elves have to leave and go into the West. Well, I thought that was also interesting in this. It finally clicked for me the fact that I guess they mention it in, obviously, like in Lord of the Rings, like all the elves are leaving Middle Earth. Yeah. But it didn't quite connect that it's like they're all going to die, like their time is up. And I feel like this whole, like the tree dying thing, it kind of connected those dots for me better. It was messy because like the elves aren't really going to die. They're just going to sort of fade. Fade in the sense of eventually being insubstantial, like wispy. And they actually hint at this in the Lord of the Rings, the movies. Early on where you see some of the elves traveling to go into the West, some of them are like translucent. You can see through them. Yeah. Okay. I never quite understood that. It's that kind of fading. Because they don't die. They're around as long as that world is around. But if they don't go into the West, into the Undying Lands, and stay in Middle-earth where all things decay, they can't keep the candle burning forever. Interesting. Like they can in the West. Yeah, what did you think about the like actual showing you what going into the West was? Oh, that was great. That brings <laughs> me to whatever segment, we still need to come up with a name for it, where I read way too much philosophy and theology into this work <laughs> of a very secular company, Amazon, by no means living out Catholic social teaching and or any other kind of Catholic teaching. <laughs> but in this case, I think the writers have managed to sneak in as much as they can. Kara, I'm looking at the clock, and I think this is going to need to be another two-parter. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll pick this back up next time. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. See you next time, good bread. <laughs> And thank you for listening. As always, be sure to share this podcast with your friends, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you.